The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Hear God's Word. This is from Mark 11, end of 11. Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let me pray again for us. Lord, this is a heavy word to your church, and we pray that, Lord, we would give heed and attention, that we would understand and that your spirit would illuminate this passage and help us to see how good Jesus is and what he has done for us. Help us to also see, Lord, the things in our heart that are much like the Jewish authorities. And may we repent and be different. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, sometimes I wonder if parents have all been to, to parent school. You know, they, they all kind of use the same lines. And you, you find yourself as a parent using some of the same lines that your parents used. And one of those questions is when you really kind of want to, you know, get your child's attention or bring some humility is the, is the whammo, is who gave you permission to do that? And I remember one time my brother when we were right here in Gaithersburg, right near Brown Station, we lived in the apartment complex there, and when he was learning how to ride a bike, he was only allowed to ride in the very, very top section. He was not allowed to go down the hill to the next section. But he learned how to ride, and he decided, I'm going for it. 
And he went down to the lower section, and all was good till he started pedaling back up, and he heard the sound of the Volkswagen, which was my dad's vehicle. My dad rolled down the window, and he said to him, Who gave you permission to be riding down here? And he was completely scared, and so he said, Mom did. He knew he was in big trouble, so he just figured he'd buy a little time. And of course, that only made it much worse because not only did you not have permission, but you lied about the permission and you did not have permission. And so he was in big, big trouble. Who gave you permission? Well, what we see from these so-called religious authorities, and if you look at Sometime, I mean, I did a whole study this week on, the, on just the word scribes in the New Testament. Every reference to the Gospels of scribes. Do you think there are any positive references? None. And then if you did chief priest, and even scarier, elders. Every reference to the elders, which is the nice Greek word for presbyteros, where we get Presbyterians. <laughs> Every reference to the elders in the Gospels is negative. And so this is the trifecta of like the ruling authorities, the so-called religious authorities, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. They are all against Jesus, and they think they have the authority. They're the authority, and they want to know from Jesus. Jesus has come to pick a fight. As we talked about last week, he has come, he has staged everything, he has set it up so that he would come riding into town on a donkey, fulfilling very clearly Zechariah 9.9, and the crowd is chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which they have been singing all week as they're singing the Hallel Psalms, and they're certainly singing Psalm 118, it'd be like us singing jingle bells at Christmas or joy to the world, we certainly know that refrain, and now they're singing it to Jesus as he comes riding into town, and then he comes right into the temple, and he starts throwing over the tables, kicking stuff out, and he said, whoa, you, he sets up a blockade. Nobody's using this place as a shortcut anymore to cut across the temple, and he's had enough of this. And then he has the audacity to say, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers quoting Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 11, but he's applying it like he's the authority, like it's his furniture, like it's his house. And you can imagine these religious authorities are seeing, wait a minute, we're the establishment, we have the power, we have the control, we have the authority, and we're losing all of it, and we're losing followers. It's all being diminished, and quite frankly, it's being thwarted. This one person thinks he owns the place. He's turning over our tables. He's taken away our money. He's taken away our livelihood. And they want to know, who in the world gave you the authority to do this? I mean, imagine if, if, if you're in school, and all of a sudden, you hear over the PA system, children, teachers, faculty, we just want you to know that school will be closing at noon today and the school buses will be coming to pick you up. And the person who went in there was a high school kid and he just walked right over to the PA system, grabbed a hold of that thing and makes a declaration to the whole school. What do you think everybody in the office is going to do? They're going to pull out the question, who gave you permission to get on the PA system and to make that kind of pronouncement? A half day for everybody. 
Boy, that, that gets you in trouble. So this is what, I mean, Jesus is clearly, the, the, we are at the a complete crossroads of division, of division. It's all been leading up to this. The scribes have come down twice from Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're hearing about Jesus' authority, and they're constantly asking questions of Jesus. And so if you've been, you know, reading along, you know, in this Gospel of Mark, and it's like, you know, we just read the call to worship. They're astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I mean, you might as well just say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. I mean, it's the same thing because as soon as you say that, what happens if you're a scribe? I mean, what do Joseph, David, and Jesus all have in common? They're victims of jealousy. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? And it didn't go so well for Joseph, did it? When his brother saw that coat on him. It didn't go so well for David as soon as David heard, as soon as Saul heard the song, it was like ding! Harmful spirit rushed upon him. From that day on, I'm going to kill David. And the scribes hear this the first miracle, they hear them saying and whispering that he has authority and not as the scribes. Man, they are ready to kill him from the get-go. They cry out blasphemy. And the next time he does a miracle, he heals this paralytic. And he says to the paralytic before he heals him, your sins are forgiven. The scribes are like, this man's committed blasphemy. Who can, for, who can forgive sins but God alone? Then he calls Levi to be with him as one of his followers. Levi, a tax collector. And of course, the scribes are up in arms. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners when Levi invites his friends and Jesus to have a meal with them? Then Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Scribes are like, he's possessed by Beelzebub. And Jesus says what? How can Satan cast out Satan? Kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And they tell, Jesus tells them, that's the unpardonable sin, is to attribute to Satan what you clearly know is the work of God. And then, the disciples are not washing before they eat meals and the scribes are upset again. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Of course, Jesus wants to know, why do you set aside the commandments of God for the traditions of men? You see, this thing has been leading up to this. And so Jesus comes into the temple, and now it's the showdown. This is high noon. And they want to know instantly, who gave you permission? Who gave you permission? to do the things you're doing? Well, Jesus got a question. He answers the question with a question. And he, answered, he asked it in such a way that was respectful. He doesn't say, uh, you know, he asked this question, um, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? You can't say God. Right? That was the sacred name. So, he, you know, instead, so it was the baptism of, of John from God or from man. He just says from heaven because that was the convenient way. But everybody knew heaven meant God. So was the baptism of John, was it from God or from man? 
And they know if they answer this question, they're in the horns of a dilemma, right? So they know if they say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Because he was pointing to me, and Jesus is saying, I'm the point of why he came. But if we say from man, everybody recognized him as a prophet, and that, then we're out of favor with the crowd, so we can't say that. So we'll intentionally be skeptics. And I think that's what happens a lot today. And I would just challenge us, if we land in this nice position of agnosticism, or it's, and I had somebody recently, had a conversation where, you know, I was cycling with a guy and asked him, where do you stand on these things? You know, what do you think about once you come back to church? He said, well, I'm an agnostic. You know, I just said, well, let me ask you this. Are you an agnostic because you really don't know? Are you an agnostic because you really don't want to know? There's a big difference. <laughs> and often people, people, you know, don't want to know. They have reasons. And I tried to share with them. I said, well, imagine you're, you're heavily invested. And you're a judge. But you're heavily invested in Meta and Facebook. And you're heavily invested in Tesla. And you're hugely invested. And now the one is suing the other. And you're the judge. And the judge now is, is heavily invested in just, let's just say he's invested in one of those companies. He's just got tons of stock over here in Tesla. But Zuckerberg is, is suing Musk and you're the judge. What, what's the other side going to say? You can't rule favor. You can't rule on this because you're way too heavily invested. You've got all this stock over here in this one. Of course, you're not going to be a neutral, be able to give a verdict here. How can we give a verdict about ourselves as to who Jesus is when we're way too invested that this can't be true because if it is true, everything in my life has got to change and I've got judgment coming down on me and I'm in big trouble. The good news is all of a sudden some pretty scary news because we're way too heavily invested. We're invested in me, myself, and I. And Jesus comes reigning on the parade of invitation invading our lives and he invades them in such a way that at first it seems terribly uncomfortable terribly intrusive jesus doesn't just come to be marginalized in your in your life he doesn't come for you to just you know give him an hour on sunday he doesn't come so that you can you know acknowledge him or have a little life insurance he comes to actually change your life so that the whole Copernican revolution takes place and he's the center and you're now revolving around him and you live for him that's what Jesus has come as the king the king of glory the king of grace and so he he's coming and he comes now to these authorities and he's challenging them and we can't just say well I, I don't I don't want to believe because often that is a a cop-out Jesus is forcing our hand what is your cornerstone? What it, you know, don't, I mean, you know the scripture he's saying. What's your cornerstone? What is the very foundation corner piece of your life that you're living on? This is what I'm building my life around. This is my cornerstone. And so Jesus tells a parable. 
And this is a big deal, this parable he gives, because in the Gospel of Mark, I mean, in the parables, there's Jesus tells about 30 parables. Well, there's only four in the whole Gospel of Mark, and you get three of them in Mark chapter 4. You get the sower, you know, the, the mustard seed and the growing seed, and then you have this one. That's it in the Gospel of Mark, because it's the Gospel of action. But you get this one, so you know it must be a big one, because it's the only other parable that Mark ventures to, to lay out for us, and it's a huge one. And in this parable, we have a landowner. And this landowner has a business venture idea. He's going to have a he's going to have a vineyard. He's going to have these grapevines, he's going to lease out the work to the tenant, and it's going to make a lucrative profit, but it's going to take 4 or 5 years later before this wine is is going to come from this vineyard. But to do this vineyard, he puts a lot of sweat equity into this, doesn't he? In verse 1, I mean, this owner puts a fence around it, he digs a pit for the wine press, he builds a tower, and he's done a lot to protect him from thieves. He leases it to tenants, and then he goes off to another country. And so while he's away, this, this landowner is still providing for them. He's providing the manure, the supplies, and now four or five years later now, the landowner, it's his, he's the owner, he sends a servant to get some of the fruit, either the grapes themselves or the money from the income of the vineyard. Now, before I proceed further, I mean, you have to know that when you use the word vineyard to the chief priest, the scribes and authority, it would be like Jesus, me saying to you when Jesus says, just complete the sentence, I am the vine and you are the... How'd you know that? You guys are so smart. Well, when you just say the word vineyard to a good Jew, they know Isaiah 5, 7. And they know that vineyard means Israel. So when you give a parable about a vineyard, they instantly know you're talking about us. Just as I said, I'm the vine and you are the branches, you just knew it. They knew Isaiah 5, 7. And Isaiah 5, 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Wait a minute, he's telling this parable, and he's realizing, these, these authorities realize, wait a minute, <clears throat> he's talking about us. The vineyard, you know, they would have easily understood and made the connection. And so what we see in this parable is that the owner keeps sending, the word sent, is again and again. He sends a servant. Verse 2. He sends another servant. Verse 4. He sends another. Verse 5. And then in verse 6, he sends to them his son. But what happens every time there's a sent? He keeps sending, 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 sending. And what are we seeing? <clears throat> well, the first servant, it says that he... They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's not exactly a very nice greeting, is it? Then he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the, the head and treated him shamefully. Sent another and him they killed. And many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he finally sent a beloved son. And when, they, when he sent to him, they said, he said, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. 
What is going on here? What we're seeing from this parable is everything about the heart of man and everything about the heart of God. And in the heart of man is that deep down, these leaders are a lot like us. They want squatters' rights. They don't want to be tenants. They want to be owners. They feel like they're entitled to what they have. And all of a sudden, now they're becoming greedy. They're becoming selfish. They're becoming territorial. They're not sharing. They are proud. And now it gets worse. They're getting violent. They're creating a toxic culture. They're abusive. And there's a toxic cancel culture environment canceling to the point of death. We want this vineyard. We think it's ours. We haven't seen that owner. And it was a rule of, if, if you could prove that the owner didn't exist for three years, you could claim it as your own. But they're, they're like claiming squatters' rights. They didn't see themselves as tenants. They didn't see themselves as someone who is to be about the interest of the owner and to help the owner and to, to work for the owner and to, and to give the owner the fruit that is his. They saw themselves as, no, it's ours. This is ours. And you're thinking, that's, that's crazy, right? So we see they have a responsibility as tenants to live and to bring honor to the owner. But instead of this responsibility, it's turned into rebellion. And the rebellion is they're serving their own interest. They're spoiled. They feel threatened and now they're getting territorial. They don't share. And then each servant that comes, they're, they're treating them horribly. And then the worst act of hatred is the son. And instead of fearing, respecting, and treating with dignity and honor the Son, with willful intent, they know this is the Son, and their greedy hearts see it's their chance to finally own the place and to get the inheritance that they believe is theirs. They're willing to commit first-degree murder with willful plot and intent and motive and pre-planned murder, and it's ex this is all exactly what happens to the Son of God. Now, Rico Tice, who's a preacher in London, and he's done the Christian, or Christianity Explored, um, he tells a story, and he tells a story about a friend of his who teaches eight-year-olds in Belfast. I think it's probably a Christian school because the assignment or the project, the teacher is teaching them that how do they know God is creator and they themselves are creatures. And so she got them into table groups of six or seven. This is in Belfast, this is in Ireland. She's the teacher, and she gave them big balls of Play-Doh and lots of Legos, a lot of supplies. And their first order of the day was, was to create a world. You're the creator in your group, and you get to make a world. And so go ahead and make the world. You're the creator. And he's... And, she, you know, these students, these little eight-year-olds came with amazing stuff, houses, cars, animals, gardens, and rivers, and lots of people. And then she said, now you're the makers of this world that you've created. What kind of rules do you think should exist in this world? I mean, you're the creator, you own the place, and you want them to keep your rules, so what are the rules that you're going to have them live by? And so they came up with a constitution or rules. And they, these eight-year-olds came up with, you must live in peace, you should love one another. And they came up with lots of rules for this world that they had created. And the next question was, well, what will you do 
If the people that in this world that you've created decided that you didn't exist and they treated with each other however they please with no regard to your rules, what do you do? And this little girl who was completely quiet and shy, her eyes flared with anger and with clenched teeth, she cried out, we'd rip their legs off. And what you can see here is God is incredibly patient, isn't he? Because God keeps sending servants. The servants would be the prophets. He sent them Jeremiah. He was beaten more than once, put in stocks, thrown into a cistern. Isaiah, they sawed him in half. Zechariah, we're told, was stoned to death with stones. And lots of other prophets were treated terribly when they were sent to the vineyard, Israel, his people. Finally, the landowner is gonna send his son. Certainly, they'll respect the son. You see, and yet the tenants think this is their chance. And this is what Psalm 2 has been saying all along. Why do the nations rage? The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together, together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed, saying, let's throw their, let's, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They want to get rid of him so that they can have the inheritance. But what does God do? He laughs from heaven because he says, I've already installed my king on my holy hill and I've already given him the inheritance. It's already his and it's every tribe, tongue, nation, and people are his. What we see here is that all the attributes of God, God is incredibly patient. He's the owner. This is what he expects from us, is fruit. He expected it from Israel. We see that there is a, a retribution. There is a judgment. There is a judge. There is one that we have to answer to. I mean, these be, what's amazing about these tenants is they think that the owner is not, they're not going to have to answer to him. And so they're treating terribly the servants and even the son thinking, the father must be dead. The father wasn't dead. His mercy and patience had been exalted, ex exhausted, and so he has no tr choice but to send in troops and eject the tenants and to bring justice to these evil scoundrels. And in the Luke account, when he tells this parable, they cried out, these authorities cried out, surely not. They were so angry with, with Jesus in telling this parable, they cried out, surely not. Because in the Matthew account, he says he's going to take the kingdom of God from them and give it to another, meaning to the Gentiles. And he's going to remove from a time the kingdom from the Jews to fulfill this Romans 9 to 11 section of he's going to bring all these Gentiles to himself to eventually there's going to be a great ingathering of Jews. But he's taken the kingdom from them. And they are surely not. They think they're owners. Well, for us, what I want us to see today is this was all part of God's plan, and Jesus knows all along. I mean, what's so fascinating about this is they want to know by what authority are you doing these things? What authority, Jesus? When Jesus tells the parable now, what is he doing? He's flipping the tables completely, and he's saying to them, what authority are you doing these things? 
God is the owner, I'm his son, and who are you to think as tenants that you all of a sudden have become the owner and you have squatter's rights to do these things that you're doing to the prophets and that you're gonna do to me, his son. What authority, who gave you permission is what Jesus is saying. He's turning it around completely on them and showing them you're the problem, not Jesus. And so when Jesus is saying, he's, I'm the son, I'm the one who's come down, and you know I'm the son, and you're intentionally plotting to kill me, you're going to do this. And Jesus is saying, don't you know? You've been singing this song all Easter week. You sing Psalm 113 to 18 like Christmas carols, and you've been singing the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You've been singing this. It's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes that God's sovereign plan is being fulfilled, that you're the ones who are rejecting the king of glory who's come down. And Jesus knows that he's going to a cross to die for these very people that are killing him. It is the Lord's doing. As we read those scriptures back and forth this morning, God knew this was happening. Octavius Winslow has this famous quote in his little book, No Condemnation from Romans 8. And the question is, who delivered up Jesus to die? He says, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, we're a lot more like these tenants than we realize. There are the part in our hearts where it says the heart is at enmity with God. He doesn't submit to God's law, nor can he do so. Those in the flesh cannot please God. You will have a master. You will have a cornerstone. And if it's not Jesus, if it's some other idol, then you can't have two masters, and you will be pushing out the other one, giving Jesus the stiff arm and kicking him out. And the idea is that we're what the Bible says, we're enemies of God. But God, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, demonstrates his love for us by going to a cross, showing us his great love, satisfying the wrath of God by paying for our sins for us so that we could come into his presence. Jesus knows everything that's gonna happen here and he's fulfilling all of these passages of scripture. And I'll close with this. This is again from Octavius Winslow. He says this about Romans 8.32, that Jesus, that God spared not his own son, he says, the utmost payment was exacted. The last drop of the cup was drained through Jesus' blood being shed. Had there been the least relaxing of the law's stringency or the slightest curtailment of the law's penalty, then there would be no salvation for us. And all this was the unveiling of love. To spare his people, he spared not his son. Let me tell you, there will come another reckoning where we will all have to give an account, just like these tenants had to give an account. And Jesus has made a way for us to escape the wrath of God and to come into his presence and for us to wave the white surrender flag and to surrender to him. You're the king. You're bringing in your kingdom. I, I get it. You're the king of glory. I will serve you. I will no longer serve these other king or kingdoms. 
I'm going to follow you. That's what we must do now. We must repent and believe and make him the cornerstone of our life, not just a corner, a little corner. He's the cornerstone. You build everything around him. Let him have his way and his rule over your whole life. Live for him, not yourself. Let's pray together. Father, we're more like these tenants than we dare think. There is hatred in our own hearts towards those who would take away any of our power. And Lord, you gave up all your power, all your authority, went to a cross, even as they're crying out to come down from that cross, save yourself. You stayed there to save us. Lord, we've been set free from sin and selfishness. And we would say, Lord, may you increase and may we decrease as we repent of all of our folly, our selfishness, our territorialness. Change us, we pray, from the inside out as we see your, your great, great love and humility. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.